Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and subscribing to this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community by sharing knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast, and now on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Adventures in Advising. We have three great guests joining us on this episode. Yes, and we hope you enjoyed our previous episode, episode 34, which was part of Nakata's Global Advising Week with our interviews from Dr. Melinda Anderson, Dr. Terrence McLean, and Dr. Charlie Nutt. If you hadn't had a chance yet to listen to that episode, check it out. A couple of updates if you want a chance to win our new Adventures in Advising Sharing Stories t-shirt. We have three we are giving away. To enter, we have a quick survey for you to fill out. Check out the show notes on our Buzzsprout website or find the link in our social media. The deadline is May 28th to fill out that survey for a chance to win one of the three t-shirts. Also, if you haven't already, we are now on YouTube. That's right. Find episode interviews, book reviews, and advising tips. You can find us on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. And we have some more announcements to make about our YouTube channel coming up in June. Thanks to Danielle Hinton from the University of Birmingham for the shout out for Adventures in Advising. Danielle has some great lists of educational resources on her Twitter page, and you can find her at HintonDM. That's at H-I-N-T-O-N-D-M. But let's dive into our first interview, and that's with Dr. Leah Panganibon from University of Washington. We've had Dr. Panganibon on a couple times on the podcast, and we have her back to talk to you about a call for submissions on a new pocket guide from Nakata on advising stories. There's various submissions you can write for, but this one in particular made sense to have on the podcast since this pocket guide is about stories from the advising field, and our podcast is all about sharing stories. So it was a perfect fit. So let's jump right in. We have a returning guest with us today, and that is the wonderful and amazing Dr. Leah Paganibon from University of Washington. And Leah is back to talk about an exciting opportunity for advising professionals around the world, specifically if you are a Nakata member. Leah, welcome back to Adventures in Advising. Thanks. It's happy. I'm happy to be back. We're delighted to, to welcome you back. And obviously, we have a very exciting project uh, that you're going to talk about. But before we delve into that, it's been a little while. We had you on, I think, episode 23 back in November. How have the the intervening months uh, been for you? I think what, six, six or seven months. How, how has 2021 been for you? It's been really great. I've been trying to focus on the positives that have come out of the pandemic and one of those is that I got to work remotely uh, near my family in Chicago. And so I wouldn't have had the opportunity to spend that much time with them. And so it was really a wonderful experience to be able to work remotely and help take care of my nieces and nephews. And I also realized a lot of different ways that we can meet with students that is more effective. Of The students that I work with are in a evening graduate program. And so we tried um, doing things with Microsoft Teams and with Zoom, obviously, 
uh, that ended up really working in terms of creating an online community. So that's been really wonderful as well. Yeah. And then, you know, if a lot of institutions are back on campus, I'm sure they'll still be utilizing a lot of that technology. But I guess another important question is, how's your cat? Squishy's wonderful. He's great. He's on my lap right now and he's not snoring. Thank goodness or else normally if if he's on my lap snoring, people can hear him. So he's quiet. I think that could be a really interesting kind of background uh, noise. And uh, I, I imagine there are many listeners who, who wish um, they that this was a video podcast and they were able to to see cats on, on screen as, as part of it. Um, but we did uh, invite you on to discuss a, a very exciting um, uh, project that you are, are working on. So um, maybe um, we will give you a platform and maybe you could, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more uh, about that. Yeah, thanks, Colm. And I'm working on this with Matt. So Matt, feel free to chime in if I miss anything or need to correct me for any reason. So this time last year, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, I was thinking about the pandemic and how much work all advisors are doing and how underappreciated advisors are, especially during the pandemic, but before that as well. And just wanting to really focus on the positive about all the work that our community does and the huge role they they and we play in higher education uh, made me think about stories that we could share with each other that focus on the impact that we have on students, on faculty, on staff, and each other, and how could we share those stories with each other, not only to empower ourselves, but also to educate our bosses and other people in higher education about what it is that academic advisors do. So I talked to Matt, and I said, this is my idea. Would you want to propose it to Nakata with me? And he said yes, um, which is great, because Matt is one of the most positive people that I know. And long story short, uh, we're going to be putting together a pocket guide that should be coming out in the Portland Annual Conference in 2022. And right now we are looking for submissions. The other exciting part about this project is that it's basically consisting of short stories and you don't have to be published and you don't have to, it's a way for just every advisor to share their story. It's not an academic journal, although we'll talk a little bit about the importance of authorship and the importance of academic advising, but really it's just a way to celebrate each other and to celebrate our profession. So we don't have a finalized title right now. The temporary one we have is advising is forever sharing stories to ignite or reignite your advising spirit. We are a accepting um, story submissions until August 15th. And the submissions should be about 300 to 500 words. And there are more details. It was at the very end of the May highlights in Akata email, um, or people are welcome to email me directly, lpanga at uw.edu. And we're really looking for a diverse group of authors so two-year colleges, four-year colleges, all around the world, we really want to make sure that we represent that Nakata is a global community. And it, it shouldn't, it doesn't have to be anything fancy, just normal, everyday, how you would tell someone a story about the amazing work that either you or one of your colleagues does. 
So I'm really hoping that it can be something that is shared with new advisors, as well as advisors who have been in the field for a while um, and just want to celebrate themselves or each other and all the important work that they do. Yeah, and you were mentioning this was in the Nakata May highlight. So that was an email that got sent out on Friday, April 30th. If you want to go back through your emails and find that one. And like you said, is that the towards the bottom of that email is a little blurb about the call for submissions uh, for this particular project. Now, you mentioned like anyone can can submit and I, I can imagine some people still thinking they're like, nah, I have stories to tell, but I'm not a scholarly writer. I when I think of submissions, I'm thinking of a person who loves writing, loves researching, is surrounded by books and research papers. What do, what do you say to people that might be thinking that? Well, I think there's a lot of interest in writing in a scholarly journal, but either people don't have the interest in it, quite frankly, which is totally fine, or they don't have the institutional support to have the time to do that. And so I think this is an opportunity for people who would like to share about their work or about their colleagues' work or academic advising in general on their campus in a way that's really going to benefit everybody but just in a different way than traditional scholarship public scholarly publications are. And, you know, and it's not to say that it's not scholarly in the fact that I still think people will learn a lot from it, from each other's stories. I mean, that's the basis of, you know, a lot of qualitative data. We're hoping that people who haven't had their voice heard before or haven't had the opportunity to share the work that they're doing will take advantage of this opportunity because it's, like I said, it's very short. And so it shouldn't take too much time. You don't have to have any training. Matt and I will go through all the submissions and give you feedback if you were selected. But some possible themes are, you know, advisors supporting students, advising administrators supporting advisors, working with underrepresented populations, diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice efforts making a lasting difference or going the extra mile, um, new advising programs or policies, um, and advising mentorship. Although that's, although these are some ideas, it could certainly be anything else beyond that. We're kind of going to wait, see what sort of stories we get, and then um, put together themes accordingly. I think this, this sounds like a, a really exciting project, and um, maybe... This is a question for for both of you, given that you, you're you're both behind the project. I, I just I suppose I'm I'm curious for for listeners, you know, who hear who hear this and they think you know this sounds really exciting. But are there you know um and you've given some examples of of topics, um, Leah. I suppose for for either of you, are there things that either are, are you going to share stories? Are there things that you can share with us now to give us a, a sneak peek potentially without giving too much away um, about what either of you might might share in this? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think um, one thing I, I will say is like when Leah brought this idea up, she had heard me talk about a story that I had mentioned, like whether it was on the podcast or was um, at a conference or something. And that was when I was a college student. I, you know, a first time first year student, and I'd gone through the orientation, and I was supposed to be part of the education opportunity program group. And for some reason, I was left off that list. And I went with the the math department uh, group, because I was a math major at that time. 
And I had received a letter in the mail prior to orientation that said, you will be with the EOP group. So when you sign in, they'll put you with that group. And when I went to sign in, I wasn't with that group and I didn't question it. And plus I was also shy and really nervous. And I ended up going the whole day with this, with the math group, which was fine because I still needed advising through that department, but I was supposed to be with the EOP group the whole time. And so at the very end, I'm walking out of the building and it's the end of the day. They're having like this um, barbecue for, for the staff that fit the staff and students that were helping out with the event. So the event's over and I go up to someone and I say like, um, I got this letter and I was supposed to be in the EOP group and then I wasn't and I was at the math group. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I'm probably not even making any sense to this person. And, and so she's reading this, the letter that I gave her. And then she's like, well, I don't know if they're in their office now. They might've already left because the event's over, but the building that they're in is like over there. So she points and all I see is trees because the building's behind these trees. And so she's like, you know what? Let me walk you over to that building. So like she's done with the day and she stops and she helps me. She walks me to, to this building, you know, far away. We get to the building and she's like, well, their office is on the third floor, but the hallways are really weird and the numbers systems off. So don't take the elevator, take the stairwell. So she walks me to the other end of the building where the stairwell is. And she actually walks me up like halfway up the, the stairwell and says, okay, it's just one more floor up. And then you'll, you'll run into that, that, their office. Luckily, they were in there and I got that you know, extra help that I needed. So wonderful. And so really thanks to EOP on that. But this person who helped me, her name is Ellie. She ended up being, um, I ended up being a, a student assistant in the admissions office like the following month. And that's the office that she actually worked in. So I actually got to work with her. And then she went to another Cal State and then eventually came back to, to Cal State San Bernardino. And now we actually work in the same office in advising. So it's kind of this thing that kind of went full circle. It worked out with this kind of pocket guide. You know, these are stories that we all have that we may not think have an impact, but they do. You know, that's kind of what we're looking for. Anything that you can share, something that's going to help someone that's reading it, whether it gives them an entertaining story, something that makes them think about life or what they do or how they can be better at, in, in the advising profession. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a lovely kind of summation, Matt. And uh, thanks for for sharing that story. I think it will help listeners kind of get you know give them an idea of because uh, as you know there as you said there are so many stories that we all have. It's just to kind of take the time to to reflect on it. And um, I think probably what we we might we can do as well is look to to put um, the the links from. The, the email into the the show notes so that um, people have the the opportunity to to get the information um, there as well. Um, is there anything else um, anyone should be aware of? Is it open to um, like everyone from all around around the world? Anything uh, else to to, to add at, at this point? Yeah, it's open to everybody who's a Nakata member and. And just we just want to reiterate that we really want a really diverse group of stories. So you could be working directly with students as a in your first year as an advisor. You could be an advising administrator who supervises a team. It could be about yourself. It could be about a colleague. Um, but we really want to have the representation uh, that is in our the Nakata Association. So all across the world, different levels, different positions. And I think it's important because I think a lot of times we just get really focused on the work and we don't think about the impact that we make. 
going back to what Matt was saying. And there's so many things that are everyday things that I think advisors do that are actually really amazing and have a long lasting impact. And this is a way to read them and remind ourselves of the importance and value of our work. And, you know, depending on our institution, it's not always valued. Nakata awards are one of the few ways I think that advisors are actually recognized, but this is a way that's easily accessible to everybody to either think of their own work or think of their colleagues' work, and it could be in another institution, and to focus on all the good work that we are doing, but with students and in supporting each other. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Absolutely. And it's like we're all storytellers at the end of the day. And you know, if anything, I think a lot of these stories can really create kind of like that emotional connection within this global advising community that that we're in. And kind of like you're saying, too, this pandemic has not been the best, you know, in, in a sense. And I think this is something that could also provide that hope, that motivation, kind of through the human experience of these stories. And so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing who submits and, you know, getting a lot of these and who knows, maybe uh, we end up having a part two of, of this type of pocket guide. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly think when the two of you work on a project together, it tends to work quite well. So I am very excited to see what comes from this and uh, to thank Yulia and Matt for uh, talking us through it because it certainly would be, um, you know, it's worthwhile sharing this and people finding out about it. And there is plenty of time at this point um, to, to submit those stories. So uh, 15th of August, get the uh, submissions in. And uh, thank you again. Thank you. It's always brilliant to have Leah join us. And I love the pocket guide idea that Leah and Matt are working on uh, the details, the way in which they aim to share a diverse array of stories. You can find how you can make a submission to the pocket guide in the show notes. All the links are there. Coming up, it's Jennifer Copley from the University of California. Jennifer Copley is the current CNS Scholars Coordinator in the College of Natural and Agricultural Sciences at the University of California, Riverside. This role as an academic program coordinator includes managing the year-long enrollment of approximately 1,500 students in academic learning communities, coordinating about 60 first-year seminars, staff supervision, supervising over 35 student employees across five job descriptions, assisting with new student orientations, serving as staff liaison to a 50-plus member student volunteer program in the college, and serving on a variety of in-house and campus committees. Jennifer's 13 years working in higher education also include experience in academic advising, developing peer programs, creating workshops, and overseeing undergraduate research programs. Jennifer earned a BA in liberal studies with a minor in music, MA in teaching, and an EDS in curriculum and instruction. 
Jennifer also has certificates in advanced teaching English as a second language, data, building core supervisory competencies, and professional academic advising. Through those attainments, Jennifer has had the opportunity to teach undergraduate, graduate, and adult English as a second language learners. Having spent most of her time in higher education working with first-year freshman students, Jennifer has developed a passion for seeking out professional development conferences, webinars, articles, and books, and over the past few years has presented at multiple conferences on the differences in working with Gen Z students in higher education. Constant learning and professional development is not new to Jennifer. It's honestly a passion and love working in higher education and seeing the difference in the students from the time she first works with them at orientation in a first year seminar or as a student employee and sees them succeed to graduation and ultimately fulfilling their lifelong career goals. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you, Jennifer. And Matt has outlined, uh, you know, your uh, bio there. We can hear you are very accomplished and certainly your role at the moment you you juggle a lot I suppose one of the things we like to do is, is get to know guests and give listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit we heard in your bio about your passion for working with students can you talk to us a little bit about your route into to higher ed was it some was it an area that you'd always wanted to work in or something you kind of stumbled into um I would say working with students is something I've always been passionate about um, during my college years, I spent three summers working at a summer camp. Um, growing up, K-12, I had three different jobs where I was a TA for different grades. So a lot of the work experience I had as part-time jobs and summer jobs were around younger students. So I went to college to get my degree in elementary education. When I graduated, it was the lovely recession and there were no teaching jobs available. And the few that were, people were getting pink flipped like left and right. So it wasn't comforting to go into that field at that time. So I tried to figure out what else I could do with my degree in education and happened upon a role as an academic advisor and basically um, loved it. Ended up um, moving up to assistant director, associate director for that department for about five years. And then I um, took a job at UC Riverside as an academic advisor and have since moved to assistant program coordinator and now program coordinator that I currently have. Um, So even though I've had the opportunity to go back to elementary education, I've found that I'm really passionate now about working with college students. Um, and just kind of seeing their journeys. And so that's kind of where I am right now. Yeah, it almost seems like if that first part had worked out, and let's say there wasn't the recession and, and you went to teaching, like you'd still be helping students no matter what age they are and helping them along their journey. But it's always kind of our success isn't that straight line. It's always, you know, we're going in circles and that arrow goes everywhere. And then, you know, now you found yourself at UCR. So for those that may not know much about UCR, maybe they know that it's part of the University of California system, but how would you describe UCR? Um, so I would say UCR, it's definitely the most diverse university in the UC system. We have about 25,000 students, um, and that's even grown a few thousand since I started a few years ago. Um, our population is almost 60% first generation and um, low socioeconomic status students. Um, we are at HSI, our Hispanic serving institution. Um, with our next um, largest racial group as Asians. And then after that would be white, black, two or more races. So we are a very, very diverse campus. Um, What's great about it are not just the different diversity offices that are available to students, like the Women's Center, Chicano Center, LGBT Center, 
but it is a um, university that's very caring for their students. We know most of our student population, about 90% of them come from California, particularly Inland Empire. And so we get a lot of local students that are coming in. Um, they just opened a medical school a few years ago. So we're definitely growing and trying to keep healthcare in the Inland Empire and not having our students leave to go to bigger schools like UCLA or UC San Diego. Um, so it's definitely a great um, university. It's local. It's been a part of the system for several decades now, but uh, I could say that the one thing that's probably the most distinctive is how diverse our student population is. Yeah, I was reading a little bit, I suppose, in preparation for the interview and obviously a bit around the, the Cena Scholars Program. And for listeners who, who aren't so familiar, can you talk to us a little bit about, about that, what exactly it is? Sure. Yeah, so the Cena Scholars Program um, started out with just learning communities back in 2007 before I even started at the campus. And basically the idea of these learning communities is they're getting 24 students of similar majors, similar math placements, and they put them in cohorts um, where they take their math and science classes together. So that includes lectures, labs, discussions. They also have supplemental instruction or peer tutoring that they attend as part of that, and as well as first year seminars that they take in the fall. So the unique thing is that a lot of our classes, I'm sure like a lot of large public institutions could have three, four, 500 students in those classes. But when they go to discussion or lab, it's the same 24 students they're getting to see. So it's a lot of contact hours that they're getting. And it's the same group that they're with from fall to winter to spring quarter. And so they're kind of forced into this group of students. And sometimes they're a little bit hesitant about it. But usually they're really appreciative because we create these schedules for the students so they don't have to stress about finding classes. I know as first year students, that's usually a big stressor is when it comes time for registration scrambling to find classes. So because these classes are pre-scheduled for them, that takes away one of the stressors for them. It also gives them a unique group of students that uh, because they're taking the same lectures, labs, discussions, that they get to know each other a little bit better. They tend to form friendships and oftentimes will even stay friends and take the same classes together sophomore, junior, and senior year. So it's really fun being able to see them grow. Um, a lot of them have now turned into student employees that I oversee as well. So it's really fun seeing how they started out their first year all the way up until, you know, they're working for us and then going into graduation, grad school, um, other job opportunities they have. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. So it's almost like it goes full circle for a lot of those students. And especially that registration mm -hmm. part. Yeah, it's like a lot of institutions, usually the first year students are registering last. It's usually it's like the hierarchy, seniors, juniors, sophomores <laughs> in the first year. So to know that it's like, well, you can get a lot of these classes no matter what, <laughs> or probably a good chance of getting it. That's a very good selling point. But yeah. how have things been, you know, with, because was UCR 
remote and is you sort of still remote right now or doing a virtual environment? Yes. So we went remote last March. Uh, basically, we we're told like, like two days before that we were going to be closed just for a couple of weeks. That's all we were told. Just a couple of weeks, not a big deal, which turned into a month, turned into a quarter. Now it's you know over a year later, we're still remote. Um, there are talks to have classes in the fall on campus. So it's roughly about 75 to 80 percent of the classes will be meeting in person um, with the, a lot of the larger lectures though are going to be virtual, but students can still go to discussions or labs in person. And so we know that students will be on campus. We know faculty will be teaching on campus. I think what's still up in the air maybe is staffing and what that kind of looks like for different centers around the campus. Um, we're not quite sure what that looks like yet. And of course, this is all assuming everything stays safe <laughs> and we have boundaries and you know COVID doesn't spike again um, in the US. But that's kind of the plan is kind of have like a hybrid approach in the fall. Yeah. So I guess how is that with the with the learning community as you know, if, if you were since you were pretty much virtual for this last year and even to now, how's that impacted your learning community? And then I guess even looking forward to fall where it's like everything's kind of still up in the air, but there's kind of they're they're leaning towards maybe coming back in fall, maybe 75, 80 percent. How does that impact like, well, how do you even plan for that in the fall? <laughs> well, with all of the classes, we've already created all of these schedules. We actually create the schedules in March for fall quarter. And so we do planning quite ahead of time. Um, and some of our lectures have already decided they're going to be virtual. But like I said, discussions and labs planning on being in person. Um, kind of what the campus is still trying to figure out is if a student goes to a lab in person and then 10 minutes later, they're supposed to be in a virtual lab or virtual class. Where are they going to go on campus for that, right? You still have to social distance. And so trying to find places for them and places not just outside because if it's hot, if it's windy, if it's raining, right? There's in the weather you have to consider. Um, so still trying to figure out the logistics, I think, of what this hybrid approach looks like. Um, I know at least, for example, for our first year seminars, there's a faculty portion and the staff portion. So for faculty, we are letting them choose if they want to teach that in person or Virtually for the staffing portion of our seminars, we're actually, we already decided about a month ago that we were gonna keep those virtual regardless of what happens, mainly because we have like one little room in our building that can hold these classes. And it's just not feasible to have hundreds of these students going in and out of a single room and time to clean in between. And so to help put the staff mind at ease about stressing about what to do. And we already decided that they're just going to do it remote. We did it remote last fall because we were all kind of forced into that. So everyone's comfortable with it. We're not even changing the textbook. We don't want to change it too much for people because we know there's already going to be other adjustments that are happening. But yeah, we're definitely trying to get creative <laughs> with the way that we're helping these students create a sense of community. Definitely something that's been a challenge for some of them this year, right? So. And they get to see each other on Zoom, but it's not you know, quite the same thing when you get to walk to class together and you get to have some of those talks that you normally would, um, as opposed to Zoom, basically just kind of left up to chatting with people. And that's about it. 
Yeah, it's certainly going to be um, interesting. I think for all of us, we've we've been talking with guests previously about trying to to organise your orientation, and and you'll have second year uh, students who who maybe weren't on campus and trying to orientate them, and your first years. Uh, we're we're all going to have to get very creative, I think. And you know, in speaking of creative, in terms of your own role, like you juggle quite a bit, and and you supervise, I think, staff and um, and students. Um, can you talk? Uh, a little bit about that maybe and and your approach to that and how that's worked over the the last year. Sure. Um, In my supervision roles, I have one staff member that I supervise. And originally we only had one student assistant, but in the past four years, we've now created job opportunities for close to 40 student employees. A few of those are a volunteer, but most of them are actually paid positions. So one thing that I had piloted at the, early start of last year before we knew this was all going to happen was starting up a peer advisor and a peer academic leader positions. We already had peer mentors that I started up a few years ago, but found how valuable it was to have these students um, to be able to communicate with students in the program and to help facilitate our first year seminars, to meet with these students, you know, one-on-one settings, offer workshops previously with just two staff members in the, uh, with the learning community program when I started, we only had 600 students in the program. Since then, we've grown to 1,500 students. And so even with 600 students, two staff members, it's not a great ratio, right, in trying to network with people. And so that's why we created these peer programs. That way, um, this coming fall, we'll actually have one peer, at least one peer, in every single first-year seminar. So we're really excited about that. Um, and they're going to be co-teaching with either a program coordinator or an academic advisor. So it gives them a lot of professional development opportunities um, in a virtual setting. It's interesting. We did a lot of our interviews last year in February. And by the time we hired them in March, getting ready for training in April, we were all virtual. So we definitely had to shift everything we were doing <laughs> to that virtual, just like everyone else had to. Um, but we have found that there's been a few, I think, benefits from it, uh, mainly that We've been able to offer other uh, workshops that we normally wouldn't have recorded. Now we can record those workshops, post them to websites so students can watch them on their own time. We have virtual drop-in peer advising. And so students can pop in, ask a quick question. And we know, especially with registration, academic advisors get swamped with emails. And sometimes students want their response right away. So the peer advisors can help offer general assistance. They don't go anything too specific about degree requirements, but a lot of the first year students, the questions are a little bit more basic with advising. And so the peer advisors are a great resource for those students and we have those available to them um, every quarter. And so that's a program we're also expanding in the fall as well as a way to meet students. Even once we do go back in person fully, and we have already talked to our students. They still like the idea that we might have a few hours in person and a few hours virtual. So for students who can't make it to the building at a certain time, or maybe they're away from campus, but they want to ask a quick question, that that still be an option for them. So we're definitely trying to rethink how we're going to do things in the future. Um, and I said one of those is like recording the workshops is something we're going to keep doing, offering these virtual hours to students just to be more accessible to them. And I like the fact that you have like the peer in in the the first year seminar classes with the with the instructor. So, yeah, they can co-teach, get that experience. But then, yeah, the students in the class can have that peer that they can connect with and know like this person, they they've been living, been being a student. So they probably have a lot of experience they can talk about. 
share, and then also answer some of those more basic questions for students. And with the peers, has that been something that has been going on for a few years, having them as part of the first year seminar? Right. So I created a proposal back in 2015 to the director of the department who thought it was going to be a great program. She kind of moved it up to the chain um, to get funding approved. And so in fall of 2016, we hired eight peer mentors and their job was basically they each had a caseload of 20 to 30 students. And these are students who opt into the program and then they would teach a first year seminar and then present workshops. The first year we started the program, we had 40 students sign up. So not a huge number. We did the most marketing we've ever done that first year and still only had about 40. By the second year, we did less marketing, had about 150. Third year and beyond, it's been over 300 students, sometimes 350, 400 that are signing up. And we do cap it at 250. So we market it as the first 250 to sign up, get to work with the peer mentor. But because we wanted to make sure that students also could reach out to other students besides those peer mentors is why we um, are, I created the peer advising program and the peer academic leader program last year. So the peer advising, that's our volunteer program. But it's great for students who like we have some first year students that are going to be doing that. So they'll be um, sophomores this next year and it gives them an opportunity to build up their resume because sometimes they have a lot of ambition, but just not a lot of experience. So being in the volunteer role basically will kind of guarantee that they'll either get a role as a peer mentor or peer academic leader the following year. Um, they're kind of prime running in those spots. Um, they also get to host uh, a social event. So that was actually created by our peer advisors this year. They do one or two socials each quarter and they're virtual. They play games. There's no staff that attend. It's just student to student bonding basically. So wait just for them to get to know other students and hang out, have some fun. You know, even though it's all on Zoom right now, we're still going to continue these as well once we're back on campus. Uh, the peer academic leaders, these are uh, positions that are more experienced students, I'd say, especially students that have had like, tutoring experience. Maybe they've been a supplemental instruction leader. They've done presentations of some sort um, because these are students who are paired together and they don't teach with any staff. So they're co-teaching their first year seminar together. And we've um, piloted it this past fall with just two sets of pals. And now we're going to have four sets. We'll have eight of them this next coming fall. But heard great reviews from the students that were in those classes. Um, and the peer academic leaders that were teaching them loved it. And we have a couple that are returning this next year as well. So we're super excited to have so many peers working with us. I think the fact that you you const constantly endeavor to enhance, improve and expand programs is, is really admirable. And I saw mention, I think, on the website around um, the expansion of the program uh, into a sophomore program known as Persist. Um, can you tell me a, a little bit about that, I suppose, how that and how that came, came about? Was that something that you noticed that there was kind of a need for it and therefore it grew to kind of fill the gap? So that program is actually a grant funded program from National Science Foundation. It was actually um, co-written by a couple of faculty, one of them that used to work um, with our advising center, still works on campus, but now he's the chair of a different department um, and another faculty member in a different department. So basically they wrote a program for sophomore students um, and got the proposal. It was like a three page proposal. They handed it to me and said, okay, we need to create a program. So <laughs> with that, the only guidelines that were really in there was they wanted to target students who traditionally have a 
harder time graduating within four years. And so that was our students who placed into pre-calculus. And it had to include students who were either first generation and or low income. So that was part of the criteria um, and making sure that that population was eligible for that particular grant that they were going to be getting because in that program, they get paid $1,500 per quarter and they have to actually agree to not work. And the reason they came up with that number is because they're worried that students who tend to start in lower level math classes takes a little bit longer to get to their science courses, get more engaged you know, with the faculty. Um, and if they come from a, some type of disadvantaged background, it's just like the odds are stacking up. And then these are the students who will tend to sacrifice academics to work. And so it's giving them the $1,500 is about how much they would make if they're working a part time job. So within that, they usually take a research seminar once or twice a year, depending on the year. We've had it offered a couple times. Some years we've had it offered once. And we also partner with Keck Graduate Institute. So they've been very gracious in doing virtual field trips for us. Um, we usually do two field trips, one in the fall and one in the spring, just so students can see different industry-related jobs, research-related jobs. Um, that institute's located in Claremont, so it's not too far away. We usually would rent a van, pack up the students on the Saturday drive over there, and their faculty are great and wonderful, and they, they come on the Saturday to meet with our group of 12 students. There's only 12 of them in the program. We also have a couple of peer mentors that attend as well. And so the students in the program work with their peer mentors bi-weekly on a set of topics. And all of those topics are related to things that are gonna help them professionally. Um, so they talk about resumes and cover letters and a 30 second pitch, um, doing presentations. Sometimes they're scared about doing presentations. And um, they also attend a career fair that's targeted towards sophomore students. And then we partner with the Career Center on that. And then the kind of the big end of their program is they get into our summer research program. Um, it's called the Research and Science and Engineering or RISE program. So in that program, they're paid $5,000 to do 10 weeks of research. Then they get to present that research at the end at a symposium where all the students in the program um, are eligible to attend and listen to one another's presentations. So it's been a great program. It's a five-year grant. So it actually is coming up um, on the end this coming summer. Uh, we would love to continue it, but with paying $9,500 per student, uh, I know that I'm sure like a lot of other institutions, there's some budget cuts going around, so we can't financially afford to keep that program, but we're definitely trying to think of ways we could keep elements from it, like the mentoring portion, um, expanding the sophomore program to more than just 12 students, I think would be a great thing for our students because Typically, if students don't leave their first year, their second most likely is going to leave their sophomore year. So definitely trying to keep them engaged. We have so much programming now for our first year students, which is great, but definitely don't want to forget about the sophomore students. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic program. I hope it's something where you can get more funding for it to, for that to continue. And just like you mentioned, there's a lot of institutions, there's a lot of programming, a lot of funds that go to the first years and a lot of attention also then also goes to those that are in their senior year or maybe excessive unit that they want to try to you know, graduate as soon as possible. But it's always in the middle, like the sophomore juniors, where it's like, where's where's the stuff for them? And so this seems like a really great program for the sophomores. Hopefully it is something that can continue and get more students in it. Now, Colin kind of referenced this earlier where he was saying that, you know, with being remote and potentially coming back in fall, you have the incoming 
cohort of students that, that are going to be starting in fall. You have the students that started last year, but their, own, their only experience to UCR or to their institution is online learning. And so if, if, we, if let's say you are on campus for fall, that's their first time stepping on the campus. So it's like they're technically a continuing student, but they're new to the campus. I guess my question would be like for you, like what are your thoughts as like a program coordinator and, you know, engaging students? How, how do you think that will work with, with maybe those continuing students that are coming to campus for the first time? Yeah, and that's definitely something we are brainstorming on how to reach out to these students, because even though they wouldn't be in a learning community program anymore, because we don't have that program for sophomore students, yeah, definitely trying to help them feel engaged and connected to campus. When I was teaching uh, first year seminars in the fall, that was one of the questions I was getting a lot. Um, and a lot of concerns from students was, I don't want to feel like I'm a first year student, but I'm going to kind of be a first year student in terms of being officially on campus and just being able to meet people face to face as opposed to seeing everyone on Zoom. And so we're definitely trying to brainstorm ways that we can get these students connected. Um, an example of one thing we've already done a couple weeks ago, some of our mentors presented on a successful sophomore skills workshop where we, um, basically it's offered to first year students and it talks uh, to them about uh, different housing options because for them that's they didn't know that that was something that existed right that last year we hardly had anyone in our res halls and so they talk about budgeting they talk about academics because this will also be the first time that these students are going to have to register on their own and they won't have that nice you know perfect schedule that's handed to them every quarter um, and in that workshop we also added a few slides that talk about the return to campus and kind of like an FAQ guide of what you need to know once you're there um, but definitely brainstorming how we can use some of our peers, even once we are back on campus, just to just kind of be out and be present, especially those first few days where everyone's kind of nervous or not sure where to go. I'm sure the campus is thinking about this, too, but specifically for our CNAS students, students in our college, uh, we're trying to figure out what are some ways that we can connect with them. Um, we know that staffing, like I said, is still kind of up in the air of what that's going to look like, but we definitely have enough peers that we could probably rotate them in, you know, social distancing, just to be able to help give, you know, some guidance to students who might be lost, they're not sure where to go. So that's definitely a project <laughs> we're going to be working on this summer, is kind of figuring out what we can do for our sophomore students who technically it's like their first year, you know, in terms of being on campus but want to make sure that they feel warm and welcome and that they're not too nervous, hopefully get rid of you know, some of those jitters that they might have. Well, it's great to hear that, you know, the planning is is ongoing, you know, and, and you recognize that it is something that, that will need uh, particular management, I, I suppose. And I think one of the areas that will hope might be of great benefit is, is, as Matt mentioned in your bio, you have presented around kind of Gen Z. And for listeners who, you know, um, are, are interested in, in that topic or maybe know a little bit, but not a huge amount, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the Gen Z char characteristics and, and in terms uh, then of, of kind of um, reaching out to them, how you go about it? Sure. Yeah. So I became interested in this topic a few years ago, obviously, as the Gen Z started coming into college, right? Because for years and years, it was just to talk about millennials and how to work with millennial students. Um, but then we have this new population, Gen Z, because most of the students at UCR, the um, first year students are most of the time traditional going students, meaning they come straight from high school. We do have a transfer population, but in the first year population, I'd say 90% or more of our students come straight out of high school. And so 
it's definitely the, the Gen Z population. It's just roughly like 1995 to around 2010, 2012. And the ages kind of differ depending on which source you're looking at. Um, but they're a very tech oriented generation. Um, there's quotes where they talk about them having five or six screens at a time, which is probably pretty easy, right? If you have a couple screens for your computer, you have a, a smartwatch, you have a tablet, you have a cell phone, right? So they're very tech savvy. They've been born and raised with it ever since you know, they're babies. They've been given this technology. Um, but the biggest difference with this generation from any other generation is probably the mental health. And I think that that became a lot more prevalent because of COVID. Prior to COVID, around 20% of students have reported um, having some type of mental health, um, biggest one being um, anxiety and depression. Um, unfortunately, that has led to more suicides in this generation than any other generation before. And of course, COVID just made it worse. It went from about 20% to about 80% of students suffering with some type of form of depression or anxiety. So before COVID even happened, we had already talked about including a topic on mental health in our first year seminar. And we got that from our 2019 cohort where we basically sent them a whole list of topics and said, if you had to pick 10 topics, what would be your top 10? And mental health was something we've never talked about previously, but that 2019 population kind of gave us a red flag that this was something we needed to include. So we were already in talks of doing something about it in early um, 2020. And I guess just with timing, it actually worked out because we were really you know, happy that we actually had that topic in the fall for our student population. Uh, just because, you know, everything they thought was going to happen with college the first year, you know, getting to meet people in res halls, getting connected to campus just wasn't happening for them. So that was definitely a, um, it's been an ongoing topic, but we're happy that we included that. And there said even before this whole COVID thing happened, but that's probably the biggest difference for that generation. But I mean, it's a generation that's dealt with um, a lot of highs and lows, so that you don't consider them as idealistic, I guess, as the millennial generation, right? Um, they tend to have what they would call co-pilot parents instead of helicopter parents. So with our millennial generation, kind of like you always felt like the parents were hovering, right? But for the Gen Z population, they see it more as their parents are kind of their friends, right? They want to bring them with them. They don't want their parents necessarily doing things for them, but they want them included, right? Which is why we also see a lot of them either live at home while they're in college, or if they finish college, they go back and live at home maybe for a few more years until they branch out and, you know, and get roommates or get married. And so they're very tight with their parents, unlike I'd say millennial generation, <laughs> a little bit more um, detached from them because they felt like the, their parents maybe were kind of hovering a little bit too much. Um, but in terms of going to college, in terms of getting a degree and getting a job, they definitely are a very entrepreneurial generation, right? So we've probably seen a lot of these, right? All the uh, tech startups tend to be a lot of, you know, <laughs> like 20 somethings, a Gen Z population. So they are interested in working, but a lot of them want to work for themselves, right? So hence Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Etsy and all these different sites where people are kind of creating their own work as opposed to going to work for a specific, like going to work at the mall or going to work for fast food. They want to create something that they're passionate about. Um, and then as far as because they've been around tech so much, that tends to be a popular career choice for them. So like computer science, data science, engineering, um, that's like one of their top choices. Business is another one, which is not surprising because, again, they're people who want to make money, right? So we've heard of the influencers. A lot of them see that as a profession, 
right? At least while they're younger, where they can make money kind of helping to promote certain brands and they're getting free things or getting paid on the side for it. So it's definitely a very different generation than the millennials, even though they're just a few years apart. Um, but yeah, I've presented several times at different conferences and those are just like a few highlights, I guess, of that generation. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny that you say that in terms of like millennials and, and Gen Z, just a few years apart, but like so different in a sense, you know, with Gen Z just pretty much growing up on technology and all its changes. I mean, I'm considered a millennial, but like an older millennial. I mean, I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college. So, you know, I was using pay phones and now those don't really exist anymore. But are there any misconceptions that you think people have about Gen Z students? Yes. So I think the biggest misconception is that people think because they love technology, that that's how they always want to communicate. But surprisingly, even though they love their technology, their number one form of communication is in person or face-to-face. -face. So I realized with COVID, we haven't really had the option to necessarily do face-to-face -face right now, but that's the one thing that students are saying in the Gen Z population when they've been surveyed, and this is a lot of different articles and books that are out there, they're all saying that's the number one um, type of communication they prefer which I think surprises a lot of people because we all assume, well, if they're so tech savvy, then they must just want to do everything on the phone or on a computer, but that's not the case. So that's good for support staff, right? On colleges, <laughs> that means students do want to see us. They don't want to just you know, read about it on a website, um, but that's definitely like the number one thing that people are misinformed about, I think, with this generation. Um, and yeah, I think that's um, really true. And we, we've definitely seen that kind of come through over the last few few years that, you know, that they, it's not necessarily, you hear a lot that the students don't don't read emails, but they kind of want a bit more. It's not just the, the email. Um, and I suppose, you know, in terms of um, pro, like programming in particular uh, that, that you've done, if there are listeners there who are, who, who are hearing you and, and, you know, you do have expertise in the area um, and they're saying, okay, what are the things that like I can do, um, you know, facing into the new um, academic year and, you know, the, the Gen Z students, are there any particular bits of advice that you would say for listeners, advisors in terms of reaching out to that, um, that cohort? Um, so reaching out to them on as many platforms as possible. So we email students. We have a learning management system. We use um, iLearn, but we're going to be switching to Canvas pretty soon. But um, adding to our website, making sure that's current, that's up to date, because students, the moment they find a link or something, that, like a picture that's dated from 2010, they no longer trust what they're seeing online, which is why a lot of them want to come face to face. But just trying to reach out to students on as many platforms as possible. So for CNAS scholars, we have a blog that gets updated um, twice a month. We have our website that we you know, maintain, make sure that that's updated. Um, we use our iLearn, our LMS, email messaging mainly to promote like workshops or to tell them about enrollment. But then we also have an Instagram account that was staff run initially, but now it's student run and the traffic has actually picked up a lot more when it's in student run. And what was nice in the past was um, sometimes when we've had our students running it, if they were going, if someone just went to NYU to go check out the campus because that's where they're going to be going after they graduate. And so they did like a little Instagram takeover. And so it kind of makes it a little bit more real, makes it more user friendly. They don't want to hear from millennials. They want to hear from other Gen Zers. And so that's why we have those students using it. Um, and then part of the reason 
We created so many peer positions is because we wanted to give students that face-to-face -face contact. Initially, when I started, it was fine having two staff members sending out an occasional email, but because we have a lot of different platforms that we can reach out to students on, they're getting the messaging, right? Like I said, with our um, peer mentor program, starting out with 40 students one year when it's an opt-in to now we have you know, 350 to 400 that are opting into it. That's definitely hopefully good word of mouth and <laughs> that they're spreading, that they're encouraging others to do it. Um, but including all these peers is a way to provide some of that face-to-face -face contact because the budget for staffing is still at two <laughs> for our um, program, which is not a lot of people for 1,500 students. And so using something like peers is a great way to provide some of that face-to-face. -face. And I said, uh, one of the programs, the peer advisors, they are strictly volunteers and we still have just as many people applying for that position as we do for a paid position. So students themselves are still seeking out those opportunities and that experience. And then it helps us because they can reach out to more students and just two staff members are able to do on their own. Yeah, it's a great point to put all that information in as many places as possible. I mean, because of course, like email or on the website, consider more of the official kind of way to uh, inform students. But if they're not on the website or they miss that email because they get so many other emails, having social media, a blog, something like that is, is great. But I can imagine someone listening going like, that's great, but how do I ensure that I cover all those bases? Like, so like with your peers, do you have like someone like a certain peer that's assigned to like IG or Instagram and someone that's assigned to the blog? And then how do you make sure that like everything's accurate? Yes. And so we actually do have our peer mentors. Each of them have like a special project that they can sign up for at the beginning of the year. And that's kind of their project for the entire year. So yes, we have one person that their sole job is posting to our Instagram account. We have uh, two peer mentors who work on our blog. So I usually send them a topic and they're the one who um, they create it themselves. So usually one of them will write it, the other one edits. Um, and I will read it <laughs> once it's been created already. We have two peer mentors who actually uh, create a newsletter that goes out to students once a month. And that newsletter will highlight like registration dates, upcoming workshops, and usually like one campus department of the month. Um, that's also student run. So again, the students, I give them the topics, they create the newsletter, send it to me, I kind of edit it as needed, and then send that out. Um, for the website, um, my coordinator, uh, fellow coordinator works with a couple of the peer mentors, and they will take a look at the website, um, and then give any needed updates to it. Uh, they usually work with him on it. He's, so even though he's the one doing the actual updates, we'll have students at least do some of the checking and reading through, making sure it sounds user-friendly, right? Because we want to make sure it's not going to be too confusing for students because there's no point in having the website if it's lingo that the students don't understand. <laughs> so we want to make sure that everything that we do is, you know, for the students, created by students. Even our iLearner learning management system page is edited by one of our student assistants, who's also our peer mentor. And so, yes, it doesn't have to just be one person that's doing all of the work. So even though... Myself and the other coordinator will do some of the editing on the back end of things. It's the students that are creating all of this content for us. And they've all been trained. They all are very professional. We've never had any issues. Um, all of these things have been running now for a few years. And it's been a great way to reach out to students without, like I said, having to physically, you know, try to market to things. Um, and we offer all of these different services. That way students can kind of pick and choose the things that they feel would be most helpful for them. There is some overlap though. Like if we send out an email that talks about a workshop, we'll also post that on our iLearn page. And then we uh, post uh, 
like the recordings of the workshops as well on our website. So students can go multiple places to find this information um, and just a way to reach out to them. But once it's been created, it's not too hard to maintain each of those things. Um, it's pretty simple. We use things like Canva to create flyers because Canva is free and it looks so much better than creating like a flyer in a Word document. All right. So try to do things a little bit more creative. We have a student that a peer mentor that does create our flyers for us. So again, I just give her the content and she creates this beautiful flyer that can get posted, you know, on our Instagram page or posted on our LMS as needed. I think you, you kind of hit on, on this earlier, but I, in terms of, and given we have an expert, one of the things that I've seen said, and I, I've seen, I suppose, anecdotally, is the desire amongst Gen Z for authenticity and, and a feeling that, you know, they are universities or companies or whoever it is, they're selling them a product. A glossy brochure is lovely, but like, what's it really like? So it, it, it does having kind of peer mentors, peer advisors um, produce that, that the material um, for you? Does that help? With that side of things, would you say that that is, I suppose, that is true about Gen Z, that there is that desire for authenticity? Oh, definitely. <laughs> that's, that's definitely true for that population. Um, so they are definitely more marketable if you're using real people to you know, influence them, right? That's why they want to be influencers, right? Because they can be you know, a sponsor for any particular product. I have a student um, that I've worked with a couple of years, and she liked a certain energy drink and she reached out to that company and that company said hey what if we give them to you we'll pass these out to your friends right so students really love that authenticity that peer-to-peer -peer marketing as opposed to some big corporation or some big celebrity or someone like that trying to get them to do or buy something um, and so we really do kind of keep that model with our outreach to students so even though the emails come from like a, a staff account Instagram is controlled by the students, a blog, it's a student voice, right? So that's why we have the students write it as opposed to a staff member writing it. Our iLearn, it's a student editor that goes in and edits the content. So again, any of the messaging that goes out, it's written by students for students. And so they're gonna use you know, hopefully terminology that they're all comfortable with, as opposed to things that you know millennials or Gen X or baby boomers, other older generations, <laughs> maybe don't use those you know, types of words. They can kind of create um, that context for those students and make it a little bit easier for them to understand things. Uh, a lot of them are just there one or two years ago themselves. And so they can definitely give better recommendations than say a staff member who, yes, maybe you've been to that department, but it's been a few months or it's been a couple of years. Uh, whereas a student can market to other students, even in our weekly meetings with our student employees, we usually give them time to basically PR or share any events or clubs that they're part of, if they're having any, like someone just had a virtual conference a couple of weeks ago. So they kept talking about that and trying to get them to include, you know, their students and their mentees in that, um, in that opportunity. And so we're definitely all about having students have that voice. I can tell you, even just comparing like Instagram posts, one from a staff member a few years ago that had like five likes on it. Then we had one where a student was giving um, final study tubes over the um, like finals week in fall quarter, had like over a hundred likes on it, right? So <laughs> it's a huge difference when a staff member posting something about good luck on finals versus another student saying, you know, I'm there with you, like good luck everyone. And so we really do get feedback from our student employees on ways to reach out to students as well. It's not me just reading a bunch of literature, like that's great, but it's also wonderful that we have this, kind of nice little focus group that we get to talk to and kind of hear what their concerns are, hear what things 
they're excited about some of the new ideas that they have. Yeah. And even though like as we as staff, like, yes, we've been college students before we've gone through finals, but it, that was a while ago. It's so much different now with these students. So yeah, to have that pure voice, it's like, they can tell like, oh, this, this is probably from someone that I, I know is a student and someone that is in the trenches with us and, and understands us versus like someone that maybe is up on the lingo. But as we get towards the, the end of this interview, I want to kind of go back to the fact that, you know, you have various degrees and certificates in education, you know, more specifically within teaching, you've taught various courses through the years. Has, how is, or has your teaching impacted or influenced you like when you are in academic advising or your role as a program coordinator? Yeah, so Nakata has a little thing they say advising is teaching. And <laughs> so definitely believe that that's true. All right. So even though I do have experience in teaching um, like international students, I have experience teaching first year students. Um, my degree was teaching elementary students, all different ages of students. I think an important component of that is when you are Teaching, you're teaching to a large group typically. You could have 20, 30 plus people in a room that you're teaching to and trying to make sure you're meeting everyone's needs kind of where they are, which can sometimes be challenging if you have certain topics you're trying to cover at the same time trying to make everyone feel included. So advising is definitely an amazing opportunity. You have to do that one-on-one -on -one teaching with the student. So you can really cater your message, the information, what you want the student to really know, um, and giving them the opportunity to learn, not just telling them everything, but showing them where things are, right? So one nice thing I think with being virtual is that a lot of people are screen sharing, right? So you can screen share, the student can do it with you, or you can do it with the student. And previously, it was usually the advisor in the behind the desk, right, having to flip their screen around and say, okay, look at this. But now you can have a student screen share with you and you can kind of walk them through, you know, that question that they have. Instead of just saying, hey, here's a link, show them where they can find that on the website. Right. That way they remember it, hopefully, um, for the next time that they're they have that same question or maybe someone else, you know, has that question. They can show that person. And so I definitely think that advising is a, it's a teaching role, a little bit different. You're just doing that more one on one personalized approach to it. But definitely something I think that overlaps with teaching. Um, and you know, definitely you can see similarities with that. I work in an advising center where like three quarters of the staff are academic advisors. And so it definitely helps to be able to work with them as well and share kind of tips on like best practices in teaching. But they also share tips with me you know, on being an advisor. And I've been an advisor in the past for a few different years and in my work history. So I definitely can see the parallels in that. But um, yeah, for sure, that one on one attention that you can give to that student when they're meeting with you is Know, valuable, valuable time for them, as opposed to maybe a classroom where they don't necessarily always have that chance to get that one-on-one -on -one attention, which is great, like I said, for our Gen Z, because that's what they're really craving, right, is that face-to-face -face time, and advisors are able to offer that. Um, you mentioned there in terms of, you know, sharing tips and best practice, and I think that's exactly what you have done today, Jennifer. So I want to thank you for kind of offering us insights into to your program and, uh, you know, some of, some of the ways in which you, you really have looked to enhance it and develop, uh, develop it as it's gone on. Um, you know, some best practice approaches uh, in terms of the, the Gen Z cohort. It's really been fascinating. So just thank you so much for taking the time to chat to Matt and myself today. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun chatting with both of you.
Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us and sharing what you and your team are doing at UCR regarding your learning community and diving into the topic of Gen Z students. If you have any questions or would like to connect with Jennifer, you can email Jennifer at jennifer.copley at ucr.edu. And connecting to that is our next interview, also from UCR and working with Jennifer, and that's with Jaron Paschke. This interview really ties in learning communities, video content, and technology with engaging students. So here we go. Jared Paschke is a 29-year-old adjunct professor, full-time professional staff member, and a self-taught musician with a student-first mentality. Jared earned a Master of Arts in Film Studies from Chapman's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts in 2017. During graduate school, Jared worked in story development for two-time studio president Allison Shermer, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, two-time studio president Michael DeLuca, The Social Network, Academy Award-winning director Robert Zemeckis, Back to the Future, and at ICM Partners before transitioning to higher education. Jaron has recently taught classes on media and visual culture at the University of Redlands, where he graduated in 2015 with his bachelor's. He has also taught coursework for Chafee College's Broadcasting and Cinema Studies Department, making special contributions to it using open educational resources. In Jaron's current position at the University of California, Riverside, he co-coordinates one of the largest learning communities in Southern California. In this position, Jaron generates academic advising screencast content proposed towards improving the first year experience. He has spoken at the UCR Academic Advising Conference, created highly successful enrollment tutorials, and notes that screencast production is without a doubt the most rewarding team sports. So a lot of great things to talk about in this interview. Jaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for having me. We're very pleased and uh, what a, a, an intriguing background. Uh, I got a little bit of a, a taster just before we started recording. But Jaron, one of the things we always like to do, I suppose, is um, give our listeners the opportunity to get to know our guests a bit better. And so we talk about like the, the path into to higher education. I think with you, this is going to be really interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you found your way into higher ed? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's funny. My first position, actually, I was a film, television and like video laboratory aid uh, at RCC, Riverside Community College over here. And um, concurrently, I was also a supplemental instructor for public speaking. And that was my first position in higher ed. So I was going to RCC's uh, film program at the time. And um, I would fix equipment. I would check in equipment, make sure it wasn't broken when the kids would go out on shoots. And then in a completely different setting, I was assigned to one of the classes that had one of the highest drop withdrawal and fail rates on campus. And I was paired with um, an instructor who uh, literally still writes all of my letters of recommendation to this day from, you know, back in the day. And she was fantastic. She is fantastic. She's a communications professor. And um, I would go in there and I would hold, you know, peer review study sessions outside and uh, outside of class with my fellow SIs and mentor other SIs and do all of those things. And uh, just kind of proceed forward, helping the students as such. I got to know faculty. I got to learn how to help students in a very kind of basic uh, way, film equipment, go and work on shoots. And it was kind of the perfect uh, intro to higher education. Um community college environment, which was just a ton of fun just because it's so different um, and so diverse, which I really enjoyed. And then, um, you know, I actually continued working as a supplemental instructor uh, when I transferred. 
So I was able to do that, but my hours uh, deducted. And so I transferred over to University of Redlands um, into their media and visual culture program, visual media studies, and uh, continued as a supplemental instructor. And at some point, I uh, graduated there and got a position um, with uh, Ali Shermer, uh, who, like, name a movie, and she's been attached to it. And I was uh, her story development intern, which was a great privilege. And so I had to quit being an SI, which was just awful because I loved working uh, for RCC and um, RCC just, it was fantastic. My mom worked there for 35 years. All my friends worked there. So it was a great, great community. It was kind of time to do something new. So I moved to, um, moved, moved to the film industry essentially. And it was completely different. So I don't know if you've all ever talked to anybody who worked in the film industry or, you know, I'm sure you've heard stories, but essentially what I did is I drove 74 miles every day to and from Los Angeles. I'd leave my house at three 30 in the morning um, while I was in graduate school at Chapman um, to go and work. And it would be like, here's a script, write coverage on it. Um, tell us what you think, if, if we can make money off of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I did that for just multiple people. I did that for when I transferred to Michael Luca's office, um, who was fantastic. I did that in uh, Bob's Mex's office. And I just kept doing that until more responsibilities were handed to me. Soon I was training the interns. Soon I was helping the executives with special projects. And eventually I got hired by um, ICM Partners, who represents just a slew of people. But namely, I was hired by a Mo Picklet talent agent, motion picture literary talent agent. So Mo Picklet. They represent directors and screenwriters. So most notably, uh, the agent I was working for, um, she was voted one of Variety's like top 100 most powerful women. She was, you know, fantastic, very knowledgeable. And she represented Chris Morgan, who did all the Fast and the Furiouses, and Gary Doberman, who did the Conjuring series. He was a screenwriter. Um, but there was literally a day at ICM where I was like, this is not what I said I wanted to do in my personal statement. Um, I said, I wanted to like teach and make an impact. Um, and I really just didn't enjoy it anymore. And when you're reading all these scripts and this isn't just, this isn't to say I wasn't good at what I did. I'm, I can sit here confidently and, you know, with my voice recorded and say I was pretty good, but I was just like, this is not who I am. And this doesn't align with the career trajectory that I see myself on. And it's funny because hearkening back to my first day in Allison's office, um, at this time I'd worked in multiple offices. Um, my, the VP of my company had told me there's easier ways to make money. It's harder to make it in the film industry than it is the NFL. He would tell us all these things. And I was like, man, this just does not seem like the way to achieve happiness. At least for me, I saw a lot of my friends, uh, solicit a great deal of happiness, uh, while in the film industry. And I actually had a great mentor, and we had just a blast, but I figured, you know, maybe it was, I liked working for my mentor more than I was actually liked working on movies, um, which is something that took a while to learn. Um, and I got out and there was a six month gap where I was like, oh man, what am I going to do now? So I worked at Amazon and um, then eventually uh, Chafee picked me up and I got to teach classes uh, for a long time in broadcasting and cinema studies. And I had a great mentor at Chafee, uh, Matt Morin, uh, who taught me about open educational resources. He taught me about programming. He let me kind of, um, you know, go to different satellite locations for dual enrollment on my own. And that was my first real experience 
uh, into um, formal professional teaching. What was great about that is I remember I had called my mom on the first day. I remember I got out of my first class and I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. You know, there was no doubt. Um, but there wasn't that same phone call when I got out, like out of my first day at Allison's office or anything like that. It was exciting, but I had taught my first class and I was like, I cannot believe people get paid to do this. This is the most amazing thing in the world. Um, and I felt that same way when I got my job at UCR, you know, it's instinctual and it was instinctual to know that it probably wasn't right for me to be in the spot at ICM, um, when someone probably wanted it more than me, you know? So, uh, moving away from, um, Chafee, I got this great opportunity to work with Jen who you two have met now and she's just fantastic and so knowledgeable about, uh, student success programming. So under her tutelage, I got to just learn so much about, uh, peer mentorship, student success. Um, and most importantly, I think change efforts, how, how to initiate a change effort. Um, and when you're operating in a department and more broadly a, a campus, so that's really interesting and, and using data to kind of make all those decisions, which was a lot of fun. Um, so I have a wide variety of responsibilities kind of there, which we can talk about. And kind of in between all that, I started doing some adjunct gigs, at University of Redlands, uh, where my um, director, um, my boss at University of Redlands was actually my thesis advisor when I was ending the program. So. I mean, I've, I've been really fortunate to have people who um, have mentored me and keep up those contacts. And um, yeah, it's been a really great journey. Um, yeah, I've had a really great time. That's kind of how I got into it, though. Yeah, and it's great that you're able to still keep these connections with a lot of these these folks, a lot of these mentors. And we did talk with um, someone who also graduated from Chapman and one of our previous guests who worked at Loyola Marymount University, who also was in the film industry. And so you got to share some of those stories too, and a lot, lot of great stories there. And I'm sure we'll be able to chat more about that at some point. Now at UCR, what what would be your role right now, and like what exactly does that that entail? So as the CNS Scholars um, Assistant Coordinator, um, right now what I do is in terms, it's it's like just a whole bunch of different things because learning communities, as I'm sure Jen told you, are like a different thing every day. But I think one of responsibilities I have are enrollment management, enrollment troubleshooting, uh, using student information systems to address a variety of audit issues. Um, on top of that, um, our student supervision, uh, building, building in any way I can um, student success efforts that will narrow gaps and inefficiencies, uh, which include but are not limited to right screencasting, bring like an interesting knowledge of technology where I can kind of deploy such efforts to maybe make it so the academic advising staff doesn't receive um, um, redundant emails, right? If we can deploy a certain um, screencast. Uh, likewise, learning management systems. I moderate a learning management system for uh, CNS scholars, uh, update it with information. Um, I aggregate all of the information there. I monitor the website, build the website, um, do all of those things. So it's funny because as I proceeded forward, while I help with the data, um, do all the enrollment management alongside Jen, um, you know, moder moderate and uh, help train all the peer mentors, peer advisors, peer academic leaders. I teach four first year seminars for the advising center in the fall. What I enjoy doing most, like Jen as well, is finding how we can get better, right? Finding how we can service our students better. Um, I 
mostly as well, like when it's hard and when I have to learn something new. And uh, that is also what she enjoys. So we really vibed culturally because it was just between two of us, right? It was me and Jen. Obviously, uh, we have bosses and so on and so forth. But um, we really enjoyed that kind of self-regulation of learning. Um, Oh, we could do this. It was more like a then do it. Uh, My favorite director, for example, is Kevin Smith. Um, And I've loved Clerks. It's been my favorite movie forever. But I love the idea of Kevin Smith because we have this uh, parallel mentality, which he dropped out of Vancouver Film School. And um, he just wanted to make a movie. So he made a movie. Want to make a screencast? Make a screencast. You want to make it potent? Make it potent, right? Um, so I, I kind of uh, live by that philosophy, and uh, that's also how I got into the film industry, which is a little bit of a dangerous mentality. It's like, oh, you can, uh, you can make a movie, I can make a movie, and then now I'm in like a studio president's office because you know I've been a little ambitious here, uh, so you know what the world's going to deal you. So it's pretty funny, but um, yeah, I'd say I have a wide array of responsibilities and assistance to the students. There's 1,500 students, or you know, in our program at the start of fall, and that um, declines as we as we melt and students drop out of the program. But um, yeah, it's great; it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I I can hear the the desire for continuous improvement, and we definitely we heard that with Jen as well. I suppose for for listeners, Darren, who aren't familiar with screencasts, um, can you just talk to us a little bit more about that and about like how you feel, how you go about creating them and and using them? Sure. So a screencast is a digital recording of one screen. Um, And there's a few reasons why a screencast is optimal, um, especially in an academic advising situation but more broadly in a flipped academic advising situation, which while Jen and I are not formal academic advisors and do not have like formal caseloads, you think we have a large population of students that typically come to us for their issues and we split them up by drop-in hours with 50-minute appointments. So in a flipped classroom, as I'm sure you both have been told, you know, but uh, the individual space and the group space are flipped, right? So students' first contact with material, it happens outside of class. So you think the flipped advising situation, it's actually optimal for Jen and I because we are remote delivering them information such as a screencast, a digital recording of one screen, such as an enrollment tor- tutorial um, or how to accept the learning community block. Uh, how to register for classes, uh, things such as that. And then if they have questions about that, then they come in and they ask, right? Because by delivering and flipping those things that, uh, by flipping that organization, delivering those things outside of class, we now create time for more meaningful conversation with the academic advisor, the coordinator, right? And the conversation is no longer prescriptive or transactional, it's developmental. So a screencast though, in terms of, how you make it effective. It's a long process that is accompanied by a change effort within the office, right? You'll notice, I think, well, I'll say this. One, Lori Mestra, I think I'm saying that right. Um, she does a lot of work on library staff professionals. And one thing that she has noted is um, that a lot of professional staff uh lack the kind of technical expertise to make not just a screencast, but a really potent screencast. 
right? And I think that's a fair assessment to extend maybe to academic advisors. Feel free to disagree with me. That's fine. That's also been kind of my anecdotal experience, but I also, all to my own horn, I'm pretty good at film production, you know? Uh, Surprise. That said, um, a screencast, it caters to kind of the learning preferences, format preferences, and communication preferences of our incoming freshmen, right? They're students, 95 to 2010. That doesn't mean it impacts their learning or their performance. That's an important distinction to make but it doesn't mean it's not possible to cater to them or create them. I can talk about the screencast production strategy, but also on top of that, I think what's important to note is that departmentally, it was a huge change effort to just convince people, you know, that this was a worthwhile cause. So, um, and I think this is, this is just important to note for anybody listening. Um, if you're going to enact, and I was a new employee, right? But if you're going to enact a change effort, it should be based on some sort of change effort model. And what I kind of found is, and this is like, I read a book recently, it was all about change efforts as well. And the first step in any change effort should be establishing urgency. Um, And the second step is building a guiding coalition. So this is Cotter's eight-step methodology. But I think that resonates with me particularly because I was receiving so many redundant emails and wasting so much time that could have been otherwise spent building resources for the learning community. And likewise, I noticed that same issue happening with my academic advisors who partner with me for the learning community. And I had the skills to kind of narrow this gap, free them up when I know that they already have these intense caseloads. And one thing I do know is that modern practitioners of academic advising use the resources to build and sustain relationships with their advisees. So I needed to build something and show them this would work. And it was probably going to start with just me. Right. And that's how I established my urgency. Um, Then I could move on to a bigger, badder coalition. And this is kind of where it comes into the screencast production strategy. So I had nothing to begin with. Right. I was just like, okay, I know how to screencast, which is what was I going to use? I was going to use quick time because that's just a couple of buttons. And I knew that filmmaking kind of comes into this three prong process, which is pre-production, production and uh, post-production. Um, some people will tell you pre-production doesn't exist. It's where I go with, but uh, pre-production process, you have your script, you have your story development, your casting, uh, your collaboration with others and your script revision. And we were making, um, tutorials on processes such as how to accept the LC block, which is really important because that's what I was getting questions on how to do that all the time, which those of you listening um, in my process in the learning community, students accept all of their classes fall, winter, spring using a one button click, which shouldn't be that confusing, but you know, they have to go through a few different windows and um, click submit to accept all their classes. But they can't have, uh, you know, registered in other classes beforehand. There's all these little things, you know. So there's a few ways to make that more potent. Um, and I'll talk about that. And then obviously there's production, which actually where you physically screencast it. Um, and then post-production, which is where the editing, the subtitles, the analytics, um, the graphics, all of that comes in. Um, but it's pretty, you know, it's pretty, pretty layered and pretty step-by-step. But what's really important, my first step is having the student script out the process. This is the student's process and it's impacting them. So have them from their um, perspective scripted out. And this to me is just like, you can kind of 
increase what Giles maybe would call uh, convergence between student to student if a student writes in their parlance uh, an enrollment tutorial. Because it's going to be different when a staff member writes it, right? Now, a staff member should um, check it for accuracy. I think that's very true. And there should be verbal cues and markers in there that make it seem professional. But overall, it should be scripted by the student. Um, casting, when you over overlay the uh, narrative voiceover, it should be done by a student. Because I do not sound like a student. At least, I do not think so. Um, and students can tell that, right? Other, more often than not, I think misinformation on a campus spreads, at least in regard to enrollment tutorials and things such as that, because students are like going to people other than their academic advisors. Um, so if you can create or simulate that environment in your screencast, that's really important. And, um, from there, if an academic advisor or someone, uh, reliable can check your script, you're ready to screencast. Then after that, you can actually go ahead and uh, subtitle everything, um, do your analytics after you collect a certain amount of views, um, edit whatever need be. But it's it's important to have the student's perspective, which is something I noticed that I struggled with is like I couldn't find a way because our perspective when we go into our um, banner or whatever it is you use, it's like I see my perspective, but they need to see theirs. So I literally just started using student profiles of my peer mentors, right? Uh, so I'm coming back to Kevin Smith here. I'm going to use Kevin Smith analogies all day. Kevin Smith said, um, I wanted to make a movie. Uh, I knew I had a cat, a turtle, and a convenience store. So I put all three of those things in my movie. I knew I wanted to make a screencast, and I knew I had peer mentors, right? So I knew that they were going to voice over my stuff. They were going to help me script it. They were going to do all this stuff. Uh, so I was collaborating with the students, the academic advisors, and Jen. And that's why I uh, say that this is a team sport. And uh, it's, it's a very cool process to watch it when it's successful. And following that, you distribute everything. So when's the best time to teach students how to register for classes? Orientation, right? So we started showing all of these things at orientation or uh, during the orientation period. So we send all these videos out and uh, thousands and thousands of views started happening and we stopped seeing those redundant emails. So it was fantastic. Oh, that's really cool. And you mentioned flipped advising. And so if you're listening right now, we did have an episode on flipped advising, which you can check out our December 7th, 2020 episode called Flipping the Script. So hit pause, check that out, come back and then listen to more of this interview. Now you mentioned, you know, having the student perspective, the student creating the script, the voiceover with, with the student, everything on the screens with the student. Do you also take the consideration like how long each of those videos are? Yes. So that's, that's taken into consideration. Those things are where it gets a little more complex for me, right? Um, I think in part because I don't have that experience yet, but a lot of the time, and this is why I want to talk about the muddled results of screencasting and maybe why screencasting gets such a bad name in scholarship. So a lot of the time when you see the feedback that students give on screencasts, whether it's in a, in a paper that says uh, they did great, they improved learning, they increased memory, uh, or when you see that, um, someone says scholars should look beyond the trends of screencasting uh, because we saw no increase in uh, you know com completion of task or something like that. Um, it's because nobody really has training in any of it, right? So I think that's kind of a cop out is to just say, oh well, let's keep making the video shorter. So. Um, there's a great author who wrote on improving memory using uh, screencasts and video tutorials. I can't pronounce the last name, 
it's really hard to say, but it was published in 2016. And um, they say, don't concern yourself essentially with duration as much as purpose. I think it's a great thing to stick to. So for example, if I'm making an entire video on the degree audit, I probably can't do that in 60 seconds as much as your reference wants me to do it, right? Um, likewise, you see a lot of video lectures and classes that say the same thing. Um, here's a 60 minute uh, lecture on like chemistry or something like that. And I know we're getting out of the topic of advising, but purposeful uh, is more important than duration, right? especially for someone who's just beginning in screencasting with maybe not as much technical or formal experience um, than that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I can definitely see advantages to that and the way in which you, you might use it in terms of um, particularly around information pieces. Whereas if it's going to be, um, you know, more of a, a conversational piece that that is still a, a necessary uh, requirement there. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I suppose, and, and it ties into a lot of what you're saying, but we, um, I think Matt mentioned in, in your bio, um, you have a, a student first philosophy. I suppose interested in, in uh, your thoughts on, on, on what it, that means to you and, and I suppose how that ties into your work, Jaron. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to make decisions that advantage my own workload, I think. Um, I'm going to make decisions that advantage my students. I talk directly to them figuring out what they need. Um, and I think uh, that's why I've gotten such a positive response. I'll interact with my students. I let them take a part in actively producing material um, that's going to benefit the campus. Uh, it is their campus and it gives them a lot of pride to take part in this. But um, I think if we as educators take shortcuts, um, it sets a bad example. I think also if I display any sort of technophobia or unwillingness to self-regulate my own learning. I'm telling the students, go to your SI session, go get tutoring, go teach yourself this, um, you know, all of these things. And then I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm exhibiting just contradictory behaviors. And I don't think that's intellectually consistent. And to be a good educator, you need to um, walk the walk and kind of go for it. And I mean, I mean, I know you've all heard this before, but we're students forever, right? It's okay to learn something slow as long as you keep going and don't give up. So that's kind of how I see it. And my students teach me things all the time. So, and I know that made me just immediately sound like an old man or something like that, but they tell me things all the time about their preferences and how we can incorporate into their strategy. Um, and it's great, but it's, it's who we serve, right? We serve the students. Yeah, I like to see the reward, you know, and see the change, but change takes a while, you know? Yeah, sometimes it takes a little longer than a while sometimes. But um, just like you're saying with learning from students, yeah, whether it's us teaching a student, student teaching us, learning goes both ways. In your position right now, because, you know, you're doing a lot with the learning communities. And I think when we had talked before, you were talking about how this kind of position also kind of gives you that freedom and latitude to kind of like further develop and you know, try to help these students as much as possible. Was that something like when you got hired that you got to really kind of create in th this position or was there already like structure to th this position? So there was structure to the position, but um, there was no how to register for classes video at UCR before I arrived. Mm -hmm. So um, same with how to accept the LC block, um, same with how to create and submit a term plan. Um, so, and that's likely because 
you know, the lack of kind of this, I'm, I'm going to inflate myself, but that's not the intention is technical expertise. It's literally a couple buttons and some editing, you know, um, is pervasive, you know, in higher education. Uh, and you see that a lot of places, a lot of people talk about that, but I think in response to the pandemic, what you're seeing is a lot of people who were like, oh, okay, now I got the hang of this. I can zoom, I can screencast because I have to. Right. So I do think that, but, um, it just kind of formed into this. It was like, right when I was competent at my job, Jen gave me a lot of opportunity and freedom and didn't micromanage me, which is, uh, you know, I'll continue to say she was just a fantastic, you know, manager. And I started just noticing things and she was like, well, how would you problem solve this? Okay. You problem solved it. And then my director was like, how would you collect data on it? How would you establish the urgency? Right. Why do I care about this? That's not how she phrased it, but she, you have to know the answers to those questions to make everyone else care. And then from there you can convince everybody else so uh, the methodology that I was talking about uh, earlier, these eight steps, at some point um, you talk about uh, changes in corporate culture, right? Which is the last step in this. So I have trained other departments on campus how to screencast, how to edit their websites, how to build learning management systems. And this isn't like part of my job description or anything like that, but I'm not in the business of job descriptions. I'm in the business of helping students I can create better resources on campus with my campus partners. That means we can create a better first year experience, college experience for all of our students. So if we can change the culture and I can be a part of that positive change. Then that's what I'm excited to do. It's really interesting the way in which you've been able to, I suppose, use your background and interest in, in movies to in, in your work and incorporate it in to improve the, the student experience. We talked beforehand about, you know, your, your background and interest in music. Is that something that you've been able to bring in? Is it something maybe you would like to, or is that something that's completely separate and something you just enjoy for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we talked about these, these mentors in the beginning, just like, oh, how did, and this is something I teach my, my peers all the time is how to stay in touch with people, how to build and maintain relationships. This is what I do with my students as well. And it all originates from music. You know, um, when I, I talked earlier about how I worked for Amazon during those six months, I also worked for a great guy named Kevin Garcia, who is my brother's best friend. And he has shot music videos for everyone and anyone you could possibly think of. But um, he held me over for a little while. But Kevin's best networker I know. He's still talking to people for when he was like 12, you know? So it's the same thing, right? It's like, go work for people for free. Go try new things. You're not busy on a Saturday. I would rather be owed a favor or knowledge than money any day. That is kind of my theory. And so um, my director at University of Redlands, for example, email every now and again, ask how he's doing. We exchange scholarship. My thesis advisor at Chapman, I reach out to her. Um, my, there was one other student in my class at Chapman. We talk all the time. Um, everybody and anyone, you never know who they're going to be. So treat everyone with respect. And, um, I'm also huge on cold calling, which I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially my incoming students. So, um, I'll call anybody and just ask a question. I'll ask for campus tours to get to know people, um, which a lot of people I think is highly unusual. When I was working in the film industry, we had this program called Studio System, 
You could essentially look up anybody's number you wanted, like dream of a person, Spielberg, there's their office number. And you can only get this if like you were a registered production office. Right. And it's the same thing. I used to look up people who I wanted to work for, call them and be like, Hey, you want an intern? You know? And I do the same thing in higher education where I'm like, Hey, what do you think about this? I re- hey, I really like your screencast. What, what did you use? Um, same thing with conferences, but it's like rigorous networking all the time that I learned from music, which transitioned me into film, which helped me be successful in higher education, which I now imbue into my peers. But um, yeah. So for example, I told you earlier, I recorded at um, Randy Jackson studio and um, that's not because I'm like this amazing musician, you know, and again, I'm not bad, but I mean, I'm, I, I messaged a guy on Instagram after messaging tons of producers, sent him all the, my recorded music. We recorded an EP at his house in Malibu. Uh, it, you know, got some looks and then he got hired at Star West, which is his, the studio I was talking about. Then I got over there, but I was all because of one message on Instagram, you know, and you hear stories like that all the time. It's, you have to reach out cold call, do whatever you can. If you want to go help people, go help people. You want to go make a movie, go make a movie. So. Yeah. In this case, being very proactive and yeah, if you want something, reach out. I mean, it's, it reminds me of, um, so John Favreau messaged uh, Sasha Banks, WWE wrestler and said, Hey, I want you to be on the Mandalorian and sent her a message on IG through a DM. And she had said she'd hardly ever checks her DMs and just happened, just go on that one time. And there it is. It's like, and then she ends up being on the Mandalorian. So. Yeah, no, no, I think you're completely right. My, my mentor, uh, he's a creative executive at Allie's, um, and I worked for him in a senior position, uh, later coming back to Allie's. And he said these words that just like still haunt me to this day. He, he would always say, if you wanted it, you would have it. And that just haunts me, you know, cause it's like, Oh, well, maybe I didn't want it bad enough. Maybe I didn't do enough, you know? And that is, to some degree, very true. Um, if you wanted it, you would have it. Uh, maybe you didn't want it. Why didn't you want it? Uh, why didn't you try harder? All of those things are questions we should ask ourselves. And um, in the game of students, it's like, if you want to help students, go help students. You know, don't talk about helping students. Don't talk about creating resources. Go try it. Work with other people who are more experienced than you. And then um, while you're doing that, mentor people who are less experienced than you, you know, um, which is like a huge, huge thing we can do to positively affect change. Um, but I will say, unlike a lot of those days back then, I've never had a bad day at work. I enjoy my students, love what I do. Um, and particularly, I think that's in, you know, because of Jen and the learning community and all the peers I have. So we've had a great time. Yeah. And we've, talked about you know mentors you talked about you know people that that we've connected with and so our connection not just being close campuses being Cal San Bernardino and UCR but our connection is through uh, Barbara Wallace and so can you I know she's retired now but she did so much at at UCR I've met her at a previous Nakata conference that was my first connection to her can you talk about Barbara and did you ever work with her or you know how how she was at UCR sure Yeah, Barbara Wallace is, like, legendary. That's the only way I know how to describe Barbara. So uh, Barbara, you know, she – so I work at the Undergraduate Academic Advising 
uh, center. And her work there for, you know, God, I want to say it was like 20 years or something like that. Matt, I, I don't know. She's going to be like, I worked there for this amount of years. But she's just the most amazing, nice person ever. And she is just in part this, you know, she was the driving force of the learning community along with uh, Dean McKibben and Jen. And um, she used to work at the Academic Resource Center. But she was just such a great mentor. You know, you had a problem. Barbara was not an alarmist. She was just the master of all things. Uh, she was great at banner. She was great at working with students. She was great at disarming uh, anybody who may have been frustrated. Um, she taught me so much. And in fact, she was the first person to kind of teach me about students first mentality. She taught me that phrase. Right. And she told me one day, I remember we were walking to a meeting. She was like, never, ever advantage your workload, you know, over the students. And not that I had done that, but she was giving me, you know, just advice as a new, new employee when I had just been hired. Um, she told me all sorts of things. I mean, she's just incredible, you know, and it was a, a big loss to the uh, center when she left, but we got a great director who replaced her. And um, yeah, she just affected so much positive change, you know, to the campus, not just the center. But she was great. It was funny. You know, this is totally true story. Barbara uh, taught me how to uh, work a circuit breaker because we were getting some um, construction done. And I know this totally isn't relevant or interesting to anybody listening, but the three of us. But, um, you know, it was funny. One day the power went out and she was like, I'm surprised you don't know how to work one of these. And I was like, no, Barbara. Teach me. So. You, you obviously have... Uh, just a, a thirst for for knowledge that's very clear, and, and we we've covered a, a lot um, in the, the our, our chat thus far. But I suppose is there anything um, at, that you're working on um, at, at the moment, or any ideas that that you that you have? Because you sound or, or like I, you sound also that you're juggling a lot. But I'm just I'm curious. I suppose is there uh, is there anything in, uh, further in, in the works? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that I'm writing on and researching. Um, I'm really, I guess, interested in right now communication accommodation theory, which was like founded in the 70s. And it's all about communi um, convergence and divergence. I mean, to really simplify it. So essentially, when um, convergence is essentially when me and Matt, if we were talking, right, um, we mimic each other's behavior to make the communication more efficient, right? But if, for example, I got louder and louder or I, you know, accentuated my accent, it might cause the opposite, which is divergence. And then you can have mutual and non-mutual where one person's trying to converge or one person's diverging. Right. But what's really interesting is that communication and accommodation theory has not been applied uh, to screencast production theory or video feedback very much. And I'm interested in how you can kind of figure out verbal cues, nonverbal markers and figure out how they can work as an embedded production strategy into screencasts for academic advising. Um, so we know politeness cues, for example. If I say please and thank you to Matt, he's more likely to say please and thank you back, right? We know those things. So therefore in our scripts, we might wanna do that because we know they're gonna reciprocate a particular response, right? So that's communication accommodation theory. I think likewise, is more organization organizational theory. You think inoculation theory is um, how like a brand, they will immunize you, and it's a pun, right? Not physically immunize you. 
they will inoculate you from changing your mind about them by associating with uh, certain political ideologies, right? So I'm sure you can think of a ton of brands who beyond being a specific company are affiliated with like a political idea, a political party or things like that, right? So you're not just changing your mind about the brand, you're changing your mind about the political idea that they're attached to. And that's how they immunize you. So thinking of the learning community, I was thinking the other day, what ideas, what political ideas, what ideas, at least in higher education, beyond, I guess, uh, political ideas, are we attached to? How can we immunize people from changing their mind about the learning community, first year success, the ideas that we have? Um, and that doesn't mean we have to be politically affiliated. That's not what I'm you know, uh, positing. What I'm saying is student success should not be any sort of like bipartisan issue, right? So what can we affiliate ourse- uh, ourselves with? Uh, to do that. So those are some things I've been writing about, thinking about in terms of production strategy and then more organizationally. Um, I'm really interested about those things. Um, and I'm really interested in seeing how I get them wrong and fixing them. I think that's the best part is uh, growing. You know, I have a great group of people who um, who will read my work and um, tell me when it's terrible and tell me when it's great. Um Someone had this great phrase, um, my director at Redlands, he talked about perceived failures. It's like win or learn, essentially, is what he talks about. It's like you might feel terrible. And I, I use this phrase to my students that you did bad on a test, but it's win or learn, right? You need to let go of these perceived failures you have so you can move forward because it's all about the growth that happens at the end of the day. And uh, as long as you're trying, you can't be disappointed. So... That's what I've been writing on and researching. Yeah. And kind of thing goes back to what we're talking about earlier. I mean, we're, we're all students, you know, every day of our lives. And I think this will be some great topics to have you on again and, and talk about in the future. So if you'd be willing to come back on, we'd love to have you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Now, if anyone listening has any questions or wants to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can contact me at uh, jaron, J-A-R-O-N dot Paschke, P-A-S-C-H-K-E at UCR.edu. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both. enjoyed hearing about Jaron's background in the movie industry and how he has been able to utilize many of the skills learned there to help improve the student experience at UC Riverside. Also the way in which he's utilizing screencasts in a flipped advising approach is really interesting. We've reached the end of the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms, as well as subscribe to our new YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising, and also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. Take care, check in for our next episode, and as always, keep advising.